So turn again in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Uh, we're doing this series for the next two months or so called The Supremacy and the Sufficiency of Christ. The Supremacy and Sufficiency of Christ. We opened up the book by saying that the Apostle Paul was writing to the Colossians, uh, the Christians there, because one of the leaders from the Colossian church, named Epaphras, went and visited Paul while under house arrest in Rome. Epaphras told Paul while visiting there that there was a lot of good things going on in the church, but also that there were some concerns. They reported that they had come in contact with some false teaching. Teachers were teaching that the gospel that Epaphras brought, first brought forth to the Colossians in Colossae in Asia Minor, uh, the, first, the gospel that he brought to them was good, but there was something more. There's something they needed to have. They needed to add to the gospel to make them more wiser, more smarter, and, and better. They were offering us this deep spiritual experience, a, a deeper knowledge of God, a greater experience of God's power. Just follow these rules, these rituals, these speculative uh, beliefs that Christ and the gospel is not sufficient. Christ is not supreme. So Paul writes this letter uh, to the Colossians who affirmed the, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in order to refute these false and destructive beliefs. He begins the letter in chapter 1, not contending for the truth, but declaring his authority to teach the truth. We saw that, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I am an apostle with authority. Just really trying to set the mood of the letter to undercut the false prophets and the false teachers of that day. He said, I was sent by Jesus himself as an apostle. We saw that in his uh, conversion on the Damascus Rose, that Christ himself sent him as one of his apostles. And that providential decision was also by the will of God the Father, verse 1. Paul then dresses the church as saints, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Saints, we said, were set apart. That's what the word means, called out of darkness, into the family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And they're in union with Christ, he says here as well. Saints, brothers in Christ, in Colossae. And then he says, grace to you. Gracious, as you read this letter, may the, the unmerited, unfavor, undeserved love of God go with you and peace to you. God's shalom, his, his well-being, his all-embracing wholeness. And after this introduction, he jumps into the body of the letter. We saw that last week in verses 3 through 9a. He starts off by telling how thankful he is to God for them as he continues to pray for them. Look at, with me to chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He, he says, and he continues, says that we are thankful because we heard about your faith in Christ Jesus. We're thankful that we heard about your love for one another. We know that that's all because of the hope laid up in heaven. We're thankful that you received the truth. Truth of the gospel. Truth of the grace of God. That their, their hope is rooted in the gospel. We see that in verses 5. It's not only something they receive, verses 6 tells us that it's bearing fruits. We'll see that again today. It's bearing fruit and increasing among you and through the whole world. In verse 7, Paul wants to affirm the one who has given the information, Epaphras, verses 7 and 8. He's the one that brought them the gospel. He either planted the church there in, in Colossae, Asia Minor, or he was at least one of the leaders, the pastors. He says he's a beloved fellow slave of Christ and a faithful minister of Christ on their behalf. 
Epaphras told him what wonderful things he's doing that's going on in the church, the love they have for one another, the foundational mark of a Christ follower is a demonstration of love for one another. But wherever the gospel is being declared and there's fruit and it's growing around the world, the enemy also is lurking. And therefore, the early success of the gospel in Colossae doesn't stop the apostle from praying. It actually ramps things up because the enemy is lurking. False teaching is showing itself. So he begins not to not pray as things going forward. He actually intensifies his prayers. We continue to pray for him. So verse 3 opens up. We thank God. We pray for you. Verse 9a, we saw that last week, is the other end to that uh, uh, paragraph. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So we're praying for you. Here's the reason. We're thankful for all these things. And we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, this morning's text is verse 9 of chapter 1 through Verse 14, I want to let you know that verses 9 through 20 is one long Greek sentence. Talk about a run-on sentence. 218 words without breathing. I believe in verse 15, it kind of takes a, a turn in content. So we'll stop in verse 14 today. So 9 through 14, 106 of the 218 words we will look at this morning. So let me read to you from God's word It's authoritative, infallible word from the Lord. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, this is my prayer, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance, patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Just a quick overview Paul is praying. He begins his prayer saying, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And the hope or the intended effect is that they will walk worthy of the Lord. And its ultimate purpose, I think, of this context is that they are pleasing to him in every way. And the way in which they are pleasing in every way is the next few sentences. Bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge, being strengthened with power, endurance, and Thanking the Father. That's that's the way in which they bear the fruit. And then in verse 12 through 14, there's a description of the one in which they are thankful for, the Father. For deliverance, redemption, forgiveness of sin that's through his Son. That's kind of the structure of the set of the context. And we're going to move it. And we we really need to put our we need to put our thinking caps on today. Okay? Because we've got to follow some really important uh, themes here in this text. So three things. The worthy walk that pleases God, the fruitful work that pleases God, and the redemptive will of God. I try to make it really match. It took like three hours. I'm like, I'm done. That'll work for the two of you that take notes. Okay, so number one, the worthy walk that pleases God. Paul is praying. He's asking, Lord, we pray that you will be filled with the knowledge 
of his will, of God's will, that's our prayer, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that, in order that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And I think it's interesting and it's significant that Paul begins with the word knowledge, gnosis. Actually, the word has, I mentioned this last week, a prefix, epinosis, intensifying the word of knowledge. It usually, gnosis usually carries the idea of experiential knowledge. But when Paul uses this with the prefix like 15 or 16 times in the New Testament, he is speaking about the knowledge of God in particular and the knowledge of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, he writes, Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He writes to young Pastor Timothy, both in 1st and 2nd Timothy, using this word, epinosis, to point to the gospel truth, to the truth of the gospel. It's, it, it, it means, and, and Paul and means it to talk about the decisive knowledge of God. And Paul starts here because there are people there, as I was saying, who were telling them they need a superior knowledge. That teaching of Christ, or about Christ, was a good place to begin, but there was so much more they could know that they could experience if only they would just follow these, we'll see, Jewish laws and secret rites, initiations. But we know, according to the Scripture, that spiritual knowledge comes through the work of the Holy Spirit as He reveals Jesus Christ, the saving knowledge of Christ, through the Word of God. We also know that, again, that the Spirit doesn't work alone. He takes what has been made known through the Word of God and makes it known to us. That the scripture becomes the primary source, source of knowledge for the believers as they study it in the power and the presence and the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 17, sanctify them. He's praying to the Father's high, high priestly prayer. He says, sanctify his people in the truth for thy word is truth. Romans chapter 10 verse 17. Faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ, same letter, dwell in you richly. So what is Paul talking about when he says, I want you to have the knowledge of his will? Is he talking about just kind of like, you know, the experiential knowledge or this, this guiding knowledge that, you know, things like, you know, where should I live? You know, what job should I accept? What college I should go to? Or what, what career you should pursue? This, this issue of guidance. Is that what he means when he talks about the will of God? Now, there are principles to follow on all those things, but it doesn't say exactly where, where, where Pastor Lou should pastor in Glenmont. doesn't say that. There are principles to follow, right? About marriage, about family, about jobs. Right, not selling crack on the corner saying, God told me to take this job. We're not doing that, right? Not going to be a hitman for the mafia. This is what the Lord has told me to do. Like, there's certain things we shouldn't be doing. There are principles to follow. I think this more in universal in scope is what Paul is trying to say by using that word epinosis. It's what people call the perceptive will of God, or I like to call the defined will of God in command. Or the defined will, the command will. I'll give you a couple of instances in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it says this, For this is the will of God. Okay, I'm listening. This is the will of God. Why? Your sanctification. It's God's will that you grow in Christ-likeness. It's the will of God, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Don't need to ask. 
First Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ. Okay, Should I pray continually, give thanks? Well, yep, God said this is his will. Romans 2, and know his will and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Paul's writing about the law of God being uh, the revelation of who God is. And he's saying obedience to the moral law of God is not something we should question. It is commanded for us to follow. We don't ask God, should I forgive so-and-so? Or should I love so-and-so? We don't ask whether we should forgive. We're commanded to. We're commanded to love. They're, they're a defined will of God. Now, we should say, I know many of us, like, help me to forgive. I think that's a good prayer. Help me to love that person because right now, I'm not loving them right now. I get that. But Paul here is talking about God's will found in his word, epinosis, is found so that the Colossians would know the will of God according to the word of God, so that they would walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. God's known prescribed will in scriptures help us to know who God is because it's a reflection of God's character. So we could say that to know God's will is effectively to know God's character. Recently, I think about a year or two ago, we preached through the Ten Commandments. And one of the things we saw is that the Ten Commandments is really the reflection of the character and the attributes of God. The law is an expression of the lawgiver. Romans 7, Paul says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Why? Because he is. His perfect will in Scripture has been made known so that our path, as we walk and walk in it, we please the one who redeemed us. To understand what God wants me to know, we must know God as he's revealed in Scripture. Mark Twain is the one who said, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand, right? To know God, to spend time in his word, to know his word, to spend time listening to him as he speaks through his word. Paul will go on to say in chapter 2, as he's laboring for them, laboring for the Colossian church, he says that your hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you get that? I'm trying to, run, I'm trying to nail this home. The Colossians had epinosis, they had knowledge, they had the word. But the apostle wanted them to be filled with supplemental knowledge, not new knowledge. A greater knowledge of God by the Spirit through his word as they come to know Christ better and the riches of the gospel. Spiritual wisdom and all understanding. In other words, they could know the word of God and bring application to the word of God to, to their lives because they know who God is. It's the ability to, to act and, and think spiritually. So that they can win sword Bible sword drills or, or be puffed up in their knowledge? No. What's the point? Look what it says. So as to walk how? In a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him. Filled with the word of God, the knowledge of God, the, the, and the wisdom to, to, to act out in the way in which is pleasing to God. Worthy of the Lord. You see what it says? Worthy, very important, is an adverb. It's a description of 
the manner in which you walk, okay? It's not an adjective. It's not a noun. So what Paul's saying is we're not in ourselves earning our value, our worthiness by our walk. We are to walk in a manner worthy, reflective of the one in which we are worshiping. There's a big difference, okay? There's a big difference. Of course, walk has to do with conduct, behavior, and actions. As God reveals himself, our, our, our walk is, is directly tied uh, to our understanding of him, our conduct, and our understanding of who God is are connected. Knowledge of God always has ethical implications, it obligates us to bring our lives and our conduct and our thinking in line with the knowledge of God. But family, let me tell you, if you believe God to be a harsh, mean rule keeper who's always looking to catch you doing something wrong, who demands from you a, a harsh and unattainable uh, uh, walk, it will reflect how you live your life. You'll live in terror and not peace. Okay, And if you think that God is in heaven, and I don't even know if you use these terms anymore, but he's your sugar daddy. (laughs) And just wants you to be happy. Have this best life now. Guess what? Your pleasure and your glory is supreme, not God. And you should stop watching Joel Steen. But that's another side story. But if our knowledge and our wisdom and understanding comes the truth of the gospel then our walk will be what? Gospel-like. Filled with love, filled with patience, filled with understanding, kindness, joy, and thanksgiving. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. That is what pleases the Lord. And I want to be careful, but I want to be clear. We are to walk in a manner that pleases the Lord. But we walk in a manner that pleases the Lord, but that is a response, listen carefully, to the gift of grace not an effort to gain it, okay? Walk in a manner that pleases the Lord, but it's a response to the gift of grace, not an effort to get it, okay? Let me explain that. It's important, very important to me. The gospel is the good news of the atoning sacrifice, the substitute of Jesus who dies in our place for our sins, taking on himself the full wrath that we deserve, and his death on the cross and forgiveness of sin brings us into a relationship with with God, and that is by faith alone. The gospel is the good news that we are forgiven and we are adopted into the family of God by faith alone, sons and daughters of God. The gospel is the good news that in Christ, his moral perfection, his flawless achievement of the law has been imputed, counted to our account by faith alone so that we are now justified. It's an alien righteousness given to us by faith in the perfect life, death of Jesus. No amount of pleasing God, no walk you could ever do can take away or add to the work of the cross. We can't earn it. It's a free gift by grace alone. So as we walk in his will, we please the Lord. And that means if we're rebelling against his will, we're not pleasing the Lord. And here's what I need you to understand. If you're a child of God, you've been born again, trusting in the blood of Jesus. No matter how you are walking, if it's by faith and you're trusting in the Lord, it does not take away one iota your standing before God. That he is your father, that he loves you, he forgives you, and he has adopted you into his family. The way we walk, conduct ourselves will bring, though, 
either a fatherly, lovingly discipline upon his children or joy. If Paul says walk in a way that is pleasing, he's got to, he's got to mean that there's a way to walk that is not pleasing. But what I want you to see here, very importantly, it's not about pleasing God to gain his favor. It's about pleasing God because of his favor. You, do you, everybody, it's really important, okay? Let's be honest, right? For those of us who have children or siblings, you live in a family, there are some things that our children do that just do not bring pleasure. Actually, displeasure. And there's some things you're like, that's great. Great pleasure, great joy. It doesn't change an iota of the bond you have with your child. And if you're a blood-bought child of God, it never changes. It never changes. The relationship doesn't change. But I, never, I, I don't want us to walk away from the teaching of God's word with the thought that I could do whatever I want. It doesn't matter to God. If you're here today and you call yourself a Christian and you have no inkling or no drive, or, or I should say, uh, 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 it's not on your radar that you want to please the Lord, I would say turn to 2 Corinthians 13 and say, hey, verse 5, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not know this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? doesn't mean we do it perfectly. But the Holy Spirit dwelling within you is working in you to please the Lord of the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the goodness and the, and the greatness of God in the gospel. I also don't want to walk away from bearing fruit, excuse me, walking and pleasing God. We'll get to bearing fruit in a minute. Walking and pleasing God as if you have to please him in order to be loved, in order to be accepted, in order to be forgiven. In order for him to receive you, you have to please him. That's the law. That's religion. That's not the gospel. God loves, God forgives, God accepts, receives us into the family, accepts us as reconciled children of God by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Okay? Therefore, I think what Paul is saying is in in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to walk in ways, growing in the knowledge of God, learning his word, learning more about him, learning about the gospel, more importantly, as, as our lives reflect the gospel and we profess his name, we're walking in a way that is pleasing to him. The motive must be grounded in the gospel, not our performance. I can't be any more clear. Paul said, know the word, obey the instructions, have it be a response to the gospel, and that will cause us to walk in a manner worthy, pleasing the Lord. Everybody tracking with me? The fruitful work that pleases God. Look at verse B, uh, 10B. So we're walking in a manner pleasing to the Lord. What's happening? We're bearing fruit of every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, patience with joy, forth giving thanks to the Father. Now, we talked about fruit a little bit last week. The, The fruit that one displays is a direct result of pleasing the Lord as they know the will of God. And notice that the bearing fruit is seen and demonstrated bearing fruit as we increase in the knowledge in the gospel in the word of God. There are two sides to one coin. Bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge. They happen at the same time. If we're growing in the knowledge and the grace of the God, we're going to grow in our bearing of fruits. Okay? And in order for this, this bearing of fruit, it's right here in verse 10, in order to bear fruit... Good, good fruit, good works, 
it, it must please the Lord, right? I mean, that's what he's saying. It glorifies God. It must be by the Spirit, shaped by the gospel. Whether, whether it's in evangelism, we're sharing our faith, people are coming to know Jesus, whether it's transformation, we're having victory over sin in our lives, or the bearing of fruit that we're doing good, loving, and generous toward others, it must be rooted and shaped by the gospel. Right? We're doing good, and we're doing good for our own glory. It, it's, it's worthless fruit. If we're doing good, because we think the more we do for God, the more God will love us. The more I do for God, the more God will accept me. The more I do, somehow now I'll be made right with God. Isaiah calls that filthy rags. It's putrid. But if the fruit we bear, again, whether it's sharing our faith, people coming to faith, transformation, doing others, if it is rooted in the gospel, the glory and goodness, mercy of God in the gospel, it will be good fruit that pleases the Lord because he gets the glory and we get the joy. The whole chapter is about the grace and the goodness and the gospel. Paul now says we increase in the knowledge of God, increase in the gospel, our knowledge of the gospel, and we'll bear fruit as we do good works. Peter says grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, this is what it means. What does it look like? What does it mean? When we forgive others, as Christ forgave us, unearned, unmerited, we bear fruit in good works. Even though we rightly deserve wrath, anger, and, and separation from God, but the gospel says that God was kind toward us. In the gospel, therefore, we ought to be kind toward others. We bear fruit in good works. When we are loving and patient, we bear fruit. Good fruit. Why? Because the gospel teaches us that I am loved and I don't deserve it. And God is patient with me. Therefore, I must be patient with others. We bear good works. Fruit, bear fruit in good works. All this is the supernatural work of the Spirit. Applying the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the gospel, that helps us and enables us to bear fruit. Christ-likeness. Sanctification is called in Scripture as well. So, this work of the gospel is working in our hearts. It's helping us to walk in a manner worthy, fully pleasing him. It's bearing fruit in every good work. It's increasing as I increase in my knowledge of the gospel, as I press the gospel deeper into my soul. Constantly reminding myself and telling myself of how wicked and desperate and sinful I am, but how greatly loved and accepted and received I am. In Christ, all that God has done. It is the work of God. Look at verse 13. Being strengthened with all power according to whose glorious might? His glorious might. For all endurance, patience with joy. The word strengthen here is uh, two prepositional modifiers kind of uh, expressing what it's all about. He says the strengthen with, with all power, this, this sufficient work of God, this completeness of God's power. And then it adds, according to his glorious might, power is dynamos, you know it from dynamite, the force in performing the function. Might, kratos, means that he's sovereign and he reigns with, with ruling power. Paul is saying the strength of God supplies you. The might of God supplies you for his glory. He is sovereign. And family, that should motivate us. It shouldn't, it shouldn't get us to the place of letting go and letting God. It should actually motivate us 
Not to be lazy is a call of action to bear fruit because of the glorious power and might of God that he provides. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I love this verse, speaking of the grace of God, speaking about motives, speaking about power, and speaking about how grace is a, 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 not just something we receive, grace is power to move on and press in. 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. <laughs> All my religious upbringing, everything in my life, Pharisee, everything. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And God's grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, why is it not in vain? I worked harder than any of them. I'm talking about the apostles. I worked harder than any of them. Any of them. And before he gets conceited, right, he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul says, I'm working hard because God's grace is wonderful. The grace of God in my life is being poured out on me. It is pushing me forward to walk in a manner worthy, to bear fruit in every good works, to be strengthened in the gospel. <laughs> and look, not only strengthen, it helps his people what? To, be, to endure and to be patient. To endure and to be patient. That's what we need today. <laughs> God's strength empowers his people to have endurance and patience. In, in the midst of hardship, trials, uncertainty, combating heresy, right? Defending the truth. One commentator says, being strengthened by God's will bring, brings, about, brings about every endurance and patience in every way and in everything. End quote. Endurance is that ability, you know, to, to bear up, to, to endure in, in hardship and difficulty, to keep the main things the main thing, to keep the eyes focused on the gospel, working and moving in the right direction. Patience, the other hand, again, fruit of the Spirit, this state of emotional calmness in the face of frustration, adversity, to, they too complement one another. We have adversity and hardship in our lives. We have people that may be uh, uh, causing some, some unsettledness. And Paul said, no, if, if, we're, if we're walking in the way that is worthy, if we are pressing in the gospel, we'll have patience to endure. It's beautiful. But it's not enough. Or I should say, it's not all. Look, what it, look at that one word. Endurance and patience with what? Joy. Again, you, there's a way to be, to, there's, a, there's a way to endure and not be joyful. Don't raise your hand. Like, we're, we're, grin and bear it. That's not what he says. Do it with joy. Paul prayed that the Colossians might experience joyful patience, joyful long-suffering. James says, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of all kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I'm nailed in. I'm secure in the gospel. And have steadfastness, have its full effect that you may be perfect. Perfect meaning full and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, now, especially community group leaders, I'm not sure. I know I, um, the community group leaders have a commentary I, that we give out. Uh, just, just 
you guys could talk about this in community group, just so you know. Some commentators put the word joy with thanksgiving. Next verse, 12. Joyful thanksgiving to the Father who qualified you. There's, a, there's this area of, there's this, there's this reality that there's a joy in knowing that the Father has saved us. Uh, verse 12, 13, and 14. And some commentators say, no, joy is connected with patience and endurance. Uh, you know what? I look at some stuff like that and I think, all right, I'll go with both. They both make sense, right? I'm going to endure, I'm being patient with all joy, and I'm going to give thanks with joy to the Father who qualified me to share in, in the inheritance of the saints. That's, that's the way I look at it, okay? I don't think it makes a whole big difference. So what Paul's asking for the church, and, I, and I, I'm going to just keep hammering this because I, I really need you to see this. What Paul is asking the church, the gospel is to be lived out as we increase our knowledge of the gospel, right? The gospel is to be lived out as we increase our knowledge of the gospel. It's a bear fruit in every good work, whether it's in missions, demonstrating, declaring the gospel, or the transformation, the, the being set free from sin, being more like Christ. We're to live out the gospel. We are to walk in a way, oppressing in the gospel, giving glory to God alone, bringing pleasure to our Father, and He will strengthen us to endure through various hardships and difficulties with gospel patience, gospel joy, always giving thanks to God the Father. Following me? Pressing in the gospel. We're pressing in the gospel. That's what Paul is saying up to here. Now, when we get to this last point, Paul just lays down the foundation of the gospel again. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, the gospel is highlighted again because Paul is pressing in the truths of the gospel. Now he's given us the reason for our thanksgiving. It is the Father who has qualified the saints to share in this inheritance in the light. The Bible speaks about God's children being in the light. He is in the light. We are in the light. And therefore, the inheritance into which Paul is talking about is also in the light. That's the point. And what Paul is doing here throughout this chapter uh, 1, 13, and 14, is using words comes from the Old Testament. And this description of the inheritance of the kingdom comes from the Old Testament, where, where uh, in, in Exodus, in particular, in the first five books of Moses, uh, the word share and inheritance speaks about Israel's portion of the promised land. That's where Paul is grabbing this from. These believers that Paul is writing to, as it would include us, in Colossae, will receive the inheritance that was promised by God, just as the Israelites were meant to do. Exodus chapter 6. I will bring you into the land. I swore with uplifted hands to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give to you an inheritance, for I am the Lord. In fact, in verse 13 as well, we see the words... Um, we see light, glory, and deliverance and inheritance all point to the reality of the exodus. You know the story. And that now God's people, there's a new exodus. It's to his son. It points to the truth that we are his children. We are saints with a new exodus. That exodus, that deliverance now is through Jesus Christ. And look at the grounds of it. Sharing the inheritance of the saints. How? Why? He has delivered us. Mark that in your Bible. He has delivered us. God has done something for us. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. 
domain, exousia, authority, uh, uh, power. He delivered us. Done. Power of darkness transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Again, the Exodus, where God speaks in Exodus 20, I will bring you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God delivers Israel from Egypt, house of slavery, so they could possess the land. God delivers his children, you and I, from the realm of darkness where Satan is and all his cronies exist, and gives us an inheritance, a kingdom. Now, God promises his children a kingdom to come when Christ comes and restores the kingdom. And that's true. But the kingdom here in this verse is now. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It is God invading Satan's territory and delivering his people. Believers are rescued from the tyrannical oppression of sin and Satan, death, doom, unbelief. The devil's domain, the place where we're enticed to be our own gods, our own saviors, independent of the will and the pleasures of God. And you and I would still be there if God did not intervene. But he came on this big rescue mission. It involves sending his son to death, to the halls of death, to the domain of doom and darkness. All, all that is opposed to God and his kingdom rule, we have been rescued from. Delivered from a dramatic change of status from the domain of darkness to the loving rule and kindness and goodness of Christ. It's an earth-shattering cataclysmic rescue and transfer. Nothing in all creation would cause any more joy and thankfulness and gratefulness than being rescued and delivered from that darkness to be transferred to the kingdom of his son. All that took place, the bondage to sin, the bondage to death, to darkness, and the rule of the enemy has been defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. God made you alive, forgiving all your sins and trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demand. How? He set it aside, nailing it to the cross, He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. (laughs) God accomplished our deliverance. But look what it was, this last verse, was achieved by the Son. He, the Father, delivered us the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of who? His beloved Son, in whom? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God provided inheritance. God delivered us from darkness. God transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to his son all through the redemption of his son. That is why we can have an inheritance. That is why. In whom, verse 14, points to Christ. In whom, and that word we, points to our union. Notice that. In Christ we have redemption, and we have redemption. So there's, there's a sense in which Jesus does the work, and we're included in the benefit. Say amen? We're included. And that's again pointing to the exodus. The word redemption points to the exodus, that God will deliver his people and redeem them with outstretched arms, exodus tells us. The word redemption means 
to payment, um, to release a payment, ransom. It was used of a, of a slave market, and someone was released uh, as a slave, was paid, a payment was paid, and they were released. It's synonymous with freedom and rescue and liberation. The term is also in the Old Testament that the firstborn child was redeemed. They were bought back. God reminded the Israelites that unless of the, the firstborn son is redeemed, the sacrifice had to be made. There's a payment reminding God's people that sin needed to be paid for. It's what happened at the Passover. It's what Paul is talking about. Every firstborn, you know the story, the angel passed over and every firstborn son of Israel was spared from judgment and wrath and death. Why? They took cover under substitutionary sacrifice of the dead lamb. But all the Egyptian firstborn died. Paul has all that in mind going on here. The exodus, the redemption, the, the, the work of the lamb that was slaughtered and the, the covering that spared those Jewish people on that day. We deserve death and damnation. We deserve separation from God, yet we were ransomed. We were forgiven. A penalty of our sin has been paid. Jesus said right before he went to the cross, I have not come, what, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now listen family. On the cross, Jesus Christ defeats sin and death. On the cross, he not only defeats sin and death, he wins our release from sin and judgment, giving us new life through his ransom, through his substitute. That's the point. It's a cosmic transfer. And God made us qualified now to share in the inheritance. The kingdom now and the kingdom to come rescued us from Satan's dominion rescued us from darkness, made us his children, all through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Passover lamb was all about in Exodus, pointing to who? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as we learned in Isaiah, he is not only the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, he's the king of kings who sits on the eternal throne because he's a king in a kingdom. In Revelation, you'll see the worship, and you see the worship of the King Jesus portrayed as the Lamb of God. That's what this is all about. Paul ends this section. In the band, you guys can come on up. Keep your Bibles open. Paul ends this section pointing from the Father, the work of the Father, to the Son, because he is going to hit in chapter 1, verse 15, this beautiful, we'll see it next week, Christological hymn about Jesus. But for now, this table here represents... And a reminder of our cosmic transfer. The table represents the cosmic transfer. It is only in the gospel, the cross, the work of Jesus, that we have redemption, we have forgiveness of sins. And Jesus himself, this day, right now, by means of the Holy Spirit, is inviting you to come to the table, to take the bread as representative of his body that was broken for you, to take the cup of juice to remind you of his blood that was shed for you. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore all your sin. He bore all my sin. The penalty was paid. He has paid the price to redeem us back. And because of that, we have the inheritance, the kingdom. So if you're here this morning, if you're here this morning, and you never confessed your sins, you never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you're still in darkness. Sin and death await you. But because God loves you, because God loves you, he can and will deliver you from the realm of darkness and transfer you to the beloved kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, we have forgiveness of sins. 
I implore you to repent. That means to turn from your sins and to trust Christ. Say, I'm in need because I'm a sinner. I need rescue. I'm a sinner. I place my trust solely and completely in Christ. I rely solely on the cross for forgiveness. I don't want to be my own Lord and Savior. I want to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you want to do that this morning, do so. And then you can come and get, take communion. If not, you're still here. We're glad you're here. Just the communion tables for those who trusted Christ. But let me say this and we'll close. Maybe here this morning, and I want to be, again, I want to be careful. But maybe here this morning and you're walking in ways that are unpleasing to the Lord. You know it. You belong to him. He loves you. He accepts you. He receives you. You've been blood-bought child of God. But God wants to do business with your soul and your heart today. And it's time for you to say, I'm going to let go of that. I know I shouldn't be doing it. And it breaks my heart that I'm doing it because I want to please the Lord. The Spirit of God is dwelling in me and, 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 and speaking to me. I'm grieving it. I'm quenching the Spirit. But I know what God wants for me. We've all been there. Everyone in this room has been there. And that's when you say, okay, today's the day. I'm going to confess and repent my sins. And I'm going to turn with the attitude and the perspective of not going back. And then we're going to come up and we're going to celebrate communion together. Band's going to play. We'll spend time confessing, repenting, listening to the Spirit, but then celebrating the Lord's forgiveness. Band's going to play. We're going to come down these two aisles, grab the elements, sit back down, and wait for me to come back up, and we'll partake together. Let us pray. Father, there's nothing we can do. There's no way we can walk. There's nothing we can do to earn your love and grace and mercy. We just fall short, each and every one of us. And that is why Jesus came. He lived that perfect life we could never live, dying a death we should have died, in our place for our sins. It's a free gift to those who call upon you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the free gift. We thank you for your word, the revelation of who you are, that we can know you. And Lord, we pray. For those here that may have never trusted Christ, may your spirit work in their hearts to show them the beauty and glory and the incalculable works of Christ that they would turn to him today. And Lord, I do want to pray. We want to pray for those here today as well that maybe there's something on their heart, there's something going on. And Father, you would call them to repentance. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The cleansing power of Jesus is alive today. And Father, we pray. That we would confess, repent, turn, and celebrate the wonderful, beautiful, gracious kindness of Jesus on the cross. We ask all this in his name. Amen.